I'll invite you to turn your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 2. We started a study on the book of Ephesians a few weeks back. We want to continue along those lines for a little bit. We want to finish the second chapter, uh, really cover the second half of the chapter 2, half of chapter 2. And um, in doing so, let me remind you of some things that we've seen before because Paul kind of, well, the way we've divided it up, he kind of shifts gears a little bit from some of the things he's been talking about. In chapter 1, he tells us about God's plan of redemption, and then he prays the wonderful prayer the Holy Ghost saved for us, that uh, God would open the Spirit, uh, our spiritual eyes, to understand what is the hope of his calling, the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, and the exceeding greatness of his power that works in us as believers. Basically, he's praying that we'd know who we are and what we have in the power of Jesus that lives in us. And then in chapter 2, uh, he identifies, uh, in the first half of the chapter, he identifies God's plan of redemption uh, or the benefits thereof for us. He starts off and says, and you have he quickened. In other words, there's three things that it says that he did. He quickened us, made us alive with Jesus. It says that he raised us and seated us with the, at the right hand of God the Father. And then it tells us that he made us to sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Now, all these things have to do with authority. Being made alive has to do with relationship, our restored relationship with God, really renewed relationship, because if any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. It's not just a restoration of something, but it's something brand new. But then he talks about having given us authority by being placed at the right hand of God the Father alongside Jesus. Well, we, you know as well as I do that physically you're not in, in heaven at the right hand of God the Father. So it's talking about a, a positional position. Uh, I'm, I'm sorry. I'll get my tongue working here right in a minute. It's talking about a, an authority of posi- a, a position of authority. And it's talking about something that belongs to us to use here on the earth. There's no reason for the Bible to, t- to go into detail about the greatness of God's power in chapter 1 about how that God raised Jesus from the dead and then tell us that we've been raised uh, to be seated with him in heavenly places unless he wants us to use that authority here on the earth. So that's what the first half of chapter 2 is really all about. It's about who we are and what redemption has provided for us. Now, to give you a little background or remind you a little bit of the background of the book of Ephesians, Ephesians was not written just to the church at Ephesus. We've talked before about how that in the original manuscripts, there's a blank left in there. And it was intended to be passed around in this letter to be read to all the churches, probably all the churches of Asia. There are seven churches of Asia identified in the, in the book of Revelation, Ephesus being one of them. And, uh, uh, but if it belongs to any of the churches, it belongs to all of them, and therefore it would belong to the Ephesians too. So it's not like it's an error. It's just, uh, it just doesn't give you a full picture of, of what's going on or what Paul's intent was. Now, Paul, at the time that he writes this, is right toward the end of his life. It's the last of the letters that he wrote to the church. He wrote two personal letters uh, after or around the same time as this, one to Timothy, what we know of as 2 Timothy, and then the letter that he wrote to Titus. But this is Paul's uh, farewell address, if you will, because Paul knows his time's coming to an end. He tells tells us that when he writes to Timothy. He knows his time's coming to an end. He's in prison, probably in Rome. Uh, Well, most probably in Rome. And uh, and he knows that um, all the letters and all the other uh, 
what we know of as books to the churches, books of the New Testament that he's written to the churches. He knows those have been spread around the world. Paul is the most famous person in the Roman Empire outside of Caesar. He's even more famous than, than Peter. Peter's famous for having been with Jesus. Paul's famous for having seen him and received the revelation. Paul was certainly a much more prolific writer to the churches concerning his revelation than Peter was. And as such, Paul knows that everybody knows the things that he's written before. So this is not a doctrinal book. This is kind of a step back, take a last look and tell the church who they are and what position they hold in the earth. Now, as such, Paul makes a great deal out of the authority that we've been given, but not from the standpoint of teaching authority, from the standpoint of of pointing out that you're seated with Christ in heavenly places. For example, if we were to talk about Jesus, and and the New Testament does talk a lot about Jesus, and Paul does in this letter as well, about how Jesus has been raised far above all principality and power and might and dominion. Well, there would be no reason, once you know that he's got uh, the, the supremacy, the supreme position in the universe, there'd be no reason to talk about what his power can do. That would be super, superfluous. I learned that word this week. <laughs> I'm not sure I used it right, but I learned it anyway. But there'd be no reason to talk about his power because his power is greater than any power. The power in the name of Jesus is the greatest power in the universe. So rather than talking about and magnifying his power with the exception of what he did in chapter 1 when he makes the first statement and uses four different words to identify the power of the resurrection, he talks about the position that Jesus has. And the reason for that is because it's a position of power. Well, he's just identified that you have that same position of power. Now, we want to talk about what that power will do. But the Bible talks about the fact that the power that's in the name of Jesus is the greatest power that there is. So recognize that you're in a position to use it. That brings us to verse 11. Paul changes gears a little bit, if you will, if you'll allow me to say it that way, because now he wants to point us backwards. He says, wherefore, remember that you being in time past Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by that which is called the circumcision in the flesh made it by hands, that at the time you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. First thing he does is he says, now look back and remember. This is a pretty common theme with God. You remember, uh, if you've been with us in some of the Wednesday night services, we're talking about biblical prosperity. We've been focusing on the fact that when uh, Moses was talking to the children of Israel about coming into the promised land, the instruction was, remember where God brought you from. When you start enjoying all the blessings and all the increased flocks and herds and cattle and your silver and gold increases and you've built your good houses and you're living in them and things are nice and easy, remember where you came from. Remember where you came from. I I think, well, it's, uh, I'm not sure what it is. But there is such a tendency in us to think about only what's going on today and think that it's always been this way or look at things for somebody else, particularly in somebody else's perspective, and think it was always that way. I remember Brother Hagin was talking about it. He said, you know, everybody looks at the success that we're enjoying now, and this was back in the 80s and 90s. He said, everybody looks at the ministry that we've got and thinks that we always had this kind of success. He never forgot. He always kept talking about how tough it was in the early days. One of the, the stories that he told most often 
about believing God for finances when he had to start believing God for $150 a week when he's on the road. Well, at the time that he was talking about that, he wasn't having to believe for $150 a week. He was having to believe for more like a million dollars a month. But he always stuck back to the things that where he started. And I think there's a couple of reasons for that. Number one, people can relate to you on a smaller level than they can a larger level. But secondly, and most importantly, and uh, apparently, if the principle of the Scripture is true, the second reason is that it's good to remember that you weren't always where you are now. Brother Hagin used to say this. used to baffle me. He used to say, you know, sometimes I think about just giving this all away and go back, going back out on the road starting again. I'm thinking, man, what in the world would you want to do that for? Of course, I'm a young guy, and all I'm looking at is success and, you know, the outward trappings of what success means to me and stuff like that. But sometimes, at least the remembrance of the early days is such an important thing. Now, in this case, when he's writing to the Ephesians, or writing in this letter that we've titled to the Ephesians, the remembrance of where you came from, the remembrance of what things like before you found God is important because it helps you appreciate what God has done for you more and more and more. And it seems to me a lot of Christians get away from that. They take it for granted. They take for granted what they have. They take for granted what they've learned. And as a result, we forget that there are other people out there that don't know what we know and are not in the place that we're in. So Paul says, and and remember, he's writing to churches that are primarily Gentile churches. There are some Jews mixed in these congregations, I'm sure. But for the most part, these are Gentile churches. And the only thing that the Gentiles would really know or be schooled in, if you'll allow me to say it that way, about the Jews is the animosity that there's always been between the Jews and the Gentiles worldwide. They're not going to know anything about Abraham's covenant. They may know that Abraham is considered to be the father of the Jews, but they're not going to know about the history of, of, of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. They're not going to know about the covenants. They're going to know that the Jews claim to have a relationship with God that nobody else can have and looks down on the rest of the world because of it. But outside of that, what does a Gentile know about the Jews? Most of you are Gentiles. What do you know about the Jews? Only thing you know about the Jews is what you've learned by, uh, by studying the Bible. Outside of that, you don't know. You know a lot of people hate them. You know half the world is rising up against them, trying to destroy them on every hand. But what do we know about the Jews? Well, that's kind of where these folks are coming from. The only thing they know about the Jews is the animosity that has existed between Jews and Gentiles through antiquity. And that's what Paul addresses. So he says, Wherefore remember that ye being in time past Gentiles in the flesh. I want you to notice the first thing that he says. He says, Jew and Gentile is a matter of flesh, not spirit. You being Gentiles in the flesh who are called uncircumcision by that which is called circumcision in the flesh that is made by hands. In other words, what he's saying is, and notice the first thing that Paul addresses, knowing that the whole world is aware of and and conscious of and maybe having been involved in this animosity between Jews and Gentiles worldwide, the first thing that he says is, being a Jew or a Gentile is a matter of the flesh, not the spirit. And the, the sign 
of the Jews covenant participation in the covenant that they have with uh, with God through Abraham is simply an outward sign that can completely be dismissed instantly immediately be dismissed by being in Christ first thing Paul identifies when he talks about and establishes our position of authority in Christ Jesus is the end of racial divide Now, is Paul talking about races? Is he talking about racial uh, division? Is he talking about racial uh, conflict and stuff like that? No, not really. Because he's, what he's telling us is, and this is true for us as well, he's telling us that the source or the original cause of racial division is a spiritual separation from God issue. It's not a color issue. So when Paul talks about Jews and Gentiles, it certainly applies to racial issues. But it has its origin, as does all division, folks. In the issue, the one question about joined to God or separated from God. The Jews were joined to God by a covenant. A covenant that came through Abraham. The Gentiles, which means everybody outside the Jews was separated from God and that's where the source of enmity or hatred throughout all of mankind, the history of mankind has come from. And Paul identifies this right up front. He says it's all a matter of the flesh. Gentiles in the flesh, uncircumcised in the flesh, circumcised in the flesh, circumcision made by hands. Wherefore, oh, I'm sorry, verse 11, that at that time, You were without Christ. What made you a Gentile? What made you separated from God? You didn't have Jesus. Without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel. Now, what is the commonwealth of Israel? Well, I think the commonwealth of Israel means a little bit more than just the nation of Israel. The commonwealth of Israel talks about the community of those who are true followers of Abraham. Now, think about this. We've talked about this before, but I want you to think about it. And that is, why did God pick Abraham to make a covenant with? There's real no answer to that. There's one thing that it identifies uh, about Abraham's character. God knew that he would train his children to know the ways of the Lord. But is that the reason that he picked him? I don't know. Well, why did the Jews become God's covenant people? Was Abraham a Jew? No. There was no such thing as a Jew. Jew is really short for Judah, one of the 12 tribes of, of Israel, one of the 12 sons of Jacob. How in the world did we get the Jews from Abraham? Why is it that the natural descendants of Abraham are this special class of people? Why is it that God picked him and his descendants, his family, who he told would be like the stars of the sky and the sand on the seashore, to make a covenant with and leave everybody else out? See, from one perspective, you could look at this and say, well, God wasn't acting fair toward the rest of the world. Until you realize God wasn't obligated to have a covenant with anybody. Who says he can't pick and choose who he wants to have a covenant with. All of mankind was, was dead in trespasses and sins. But what was it that made Abraham a Jew? What was it that made Abraham a covenant partner with God? It wasn't his heritage. It wasn't where he lived. It wasn't what he possessed. It wasn't what he did. 
as far as sacrifices or any of that kind of stuff was concerned. It wasn't even circumcision because that came long after God first made an agreement with him. Folks, the Bible says there's one thing about Abraham, and that was that he believed God. I believe the commonwealth of Israel that he's talking about are those who had faith in God's promises. And all of Israel, even to this day, does not. Even the natural descendants of Israel today are separated by those who are true believers in the only law that they have, the law of Moses, and those who are secular Jews. So he says at one time, they were without Christ being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel, aliens from faith, aliens from belief in God in any way whatsoever, and strangers from the covenant. Notice those are two different things. Aliens from the commonwealth, from the believers, and strangers from the covenant. They knew no covenant with God. Now, what did that produce? What did that cause? Notice it says they they had no hope and they were without God in the world. Now, these are the things that, remember, Paul is saying by the Holy Ghost. Remember these things. Don't let these things get away from you. There was a point in time that you and I were without hope in God. Unbelievers have no hope. They don't know what their future holds. They may have different ideas. They may hope for different things. Hope meaning wish for different things. But they have no foundation to expect that wish to be real. And if the unsaved didn't know what their future was, they'd realize pretty quickly that it's not too bright. And notice also that it says that that was the condition at one time, meaning it's not the condition for us now. Without Christ, we were without hope. But thank God now we do have hope. Folks, you should be absolutely assured of your future. Absolutely assured of your future. Well, what do you mean your future, Pastor Mike? What is my future? Well, your future is hidden with Christ in God. Not hidden so that you can't know, but secured, sealed, so that you have an eternity of security and safety, well-being, spending time in the presence of God. Well, time, there is no time for eternity, but the presence of God is is your future. And nothing can change that. Well, it would be nice if that was enough for people to, to get excited about. But I don't know about you. Well, I do know about you. You're just like me in this respect. And that is, I'm not in heaven yet. So I'm kind of concerned about what between now and then. Notice the next thing that he says. Without Christ, you're without hope in God in this world. You have no association with God in this world. Meaning in Christ, you do. Now, notice what Paul is saying. Paul is saying, I want you to remember at one time you didn't have a future. You didn't have hope for a future. And you didn't know God in this world. Now, aren't those the things that the devil tries to tempt you with or torment you about? What's going to come tomorrow? What's going to happen tomorrow? What difference does it make what's going to happen tomorrow? We've got God with us now. See, we've, we, the church world, the modern-day church, has boiled down salvation into, well, when this life's over, you get to go to heaven. Thank God that's true. And if that's all there was to it, folks, I'd sign up. But that's not all there is to it. Not only do we have hope for what happens after this life is over, 
You've got God in this world now. And that's part of the authority that we have seated with Christ that Paul is trying to get across to us. Remember, you didn't always have that. What good does it do to remember what it was like before? It helps us to appreciate and take hold of what we have now. And that's the whole point. But now in Christ Jesus, you who are sometimes far off, talking about the Gentiles, under the Old Covenant, Old Testament times, the times of the Jews, it was the Jews with God, the Gentiles without God. Now he's saying, because you're in Christ, you which were afar off without God are now made nigh. How by the blood of Christ. Along with the Jews, you are now made one in Christ Jesus. For he is our peace who has made both one and has broken down the middle wall of partition between us. I want you to turn with me to Acts chapter 21 because where it talks about he's made both one and has broken down the middle wall of partition between us, Paul is talking about something or seems to be thinking about the way that he uses the language. He seems to be thinking about an experience that he had not too many years before. And that was when he went to Jerusalem in the ten, in, um, uh, um, was in the temple or around the temple, he was called into question. Um, let me start in Acts chapter 21, verse 27. It says, And when the seven days were almost ended, these seven days were purification. When the seven days were almost ended, the Jews, which were of Asia, when they saw him in the temple. Now, Ephesus is in Asia. So this might even be read or uh, inclusive of those who are involved in this Acts 21 experience. When the seven days were almost ended, the Jews which were of Asia, when they saw him in the temple, talking about Paul, stirred up all the people and laid hands on him, crying out, Men of Israel, help. This is the man that teaches all men everywhere against the people and against the law. And this place, meaning the temple. And further brought Greeks also into the temple and has polluted this holy place. For they had seen before with him in the city, Trophimus, an Ephesian, whom they supposed that Paul had brought into the temple. And all the city was moved, and the people all ran together. And they took Paul and drew him out of the temple, and forthwith the doors were shut. And as they went about to kill him, tidings came unto the chief captain of the band, and all of Jerusalem was in an uproar, and he steps in and stops. Paul was almost killed because of what people thought. It's not what really happened because what people thought that he had done to violate the middle wall of partition between the court of the Jews and the court of the Gentiles. So when Paul talks about what Jesus has done for us, broken down that middle wall of partition, who is he talking about? Well, he's talking about Jews and Gentiles. He's saying there is no wall to separate anybody anymore. There is no wall to separate certainly still operating that way in the temple as far as God's concerned. There is no wall to separate anyone. In other words, God doesn't have favorites. Now, the Jew and Gentile issue for us is kind of difficult. At least it is for me. Because most of the people I know are Gentiles. I grew up in a Gentile country primarily. And so the, the concept of Jews and Gentiles is not something that I ever experienced or lived with or, or whatever. And the age of the Jews really basically ended 
with the resurrection of Jesus. And, and shortly thereafter, uh, when the gospel went to the Gentiles and so forth, the, the church exploded into the Gentile world. And so the, the concept of Jews and Gentiles where God is concerned is, is a little hard for me to grab a hold of. But these people are living it. These people are experiencing it. They know that outside of worshiping idols and temples to Diana and different things like that that they had in their city, outside of that, there is no, nobody anywhere that has any claim of a connection with God. And other than just made-up circumstantial evidence or whatsoever, nobody can claim that their God is the real God except the Jews. And throughout history, God has shown himself to be the mighty God. The people in Asia still know about the story of deliverance of Israel from Egypt. And they know throughout the years, throughout the, the, the centuries, how God has favored the Jews above anybody and everybody else in the world. Nobody can, can dispute the fact that wherever the Jews go, they prosper. Well, why is that? They say it's because God's with them. Well, who is there to dispute that? There is no disputing that. And for that reason, when it came to the temple, a Gentile could become a Jewish proselyte. But even at that, he couldn't enter into the holy, the holiest place, the court of the Jews. Because in their mind, and according to their understanding of the law of Moses, it was based on one and only one set of people. Only one group of people. And no matter what you did, no matter what penance you, you paid, no matter what sacrifice you made... You could not enter into that if you weren't born into it. And that's the, that's the issue, folks. You had to be born into the favorites of God. And that's what the new birth is all about. You are born into God's family. You are born into God's family. Well, this is now is the age of the Gentiles. But that age is coming to an end. That age will continue until the rapture of the church. And then the age of the Gentiles is over. And then from that point, you see during the tribulation period, God beginning to show his power and his mercy back upon the, Gentile, uh, back upon the Jews to save the nation of Israel. Now, the, Jew, the Gentiles are saved during the tribulation too, many of them. Anybody that accepts Jesus as Lord and Savior comes into the family of God. And the Bible talks about the rapture of the mixed multitude during the midway point or around the midway point of the, the tribulation, seven years of tribulation. So we know that both Jews and Gentiles are saved. But primarily the work of God during the tribulation period or after the departure of the church is described as toward and for the benefit of the Jews. The age of the Gentiles ends. So he says, now in Christ Jesus, you who were sometimes were far off were made nigh by the blood of Christ. For he is our peace who has made both one and has broken down the middle wall of partition between us. Having abolished, please notice verse 15, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, even the law of commandments contained in ordinances, for to make in himself of two twain, one new man, so making peace. I'm going to read to you from Job chapter 9, because I want you to see some things from the Old Testament's perspective. Job is talking in, uh, I'll start in verse 2. Job's replying to uh, some of his friends, and he said, I know it is so of a truth. But now, but how should man be just with God? If he will contend with him, he cannot answer him one of a thousand. Now, that's Old Testament language for, God, for Job saying, you know, there's such a division between God and man 
that if God was to ask me a thousand questions, I wouldn't be able to answer one of them. Now, and skip down with me to verse 32. He says, for, here's the problem. Here's what Job has identified as the issue. He said, for he is not a man as I am, that I should answer him, and we should come together in judgment. Neither is there any days man, umpire or intercessor, or other translations translate this. Neither is there any days man between us or betwixt us that might lay his hand upon us both. In other words, Job is saying, my problem is I can't get to God. My problem is there's a divide between man and God that I can't cross. And as such, I can't see God face to face. I can't talk with God face to face. Folks, when the Bible talks about in, in the Old Testament that Moses talked to God face, face to face, we just think that's just a, a way of expressing that Moses talked to God. But that means so much more than what we have an understanding of. For Moses to talk to God face to face is Moses bridging this gap. Now, that was a one-time thing. It was a unique situation for a specific purpose, and that specific purpose was so that God could deliver the law unto his people. But nowhere else do you see anybody talking with God face to face. Nowhere else do you see any description of of anybody talking with God face to face. Because the idea, the understanding, the concept of somebody talking face to face with God means this, this gap is bridged. Now what bridged it? For Moses wanted only one thing and that was the law. But even at that he couldn't see God's face. Even at that God had to keep himself hidden. He had to speak to Moses out of the cloud, the glory of God concealed his presence so job is saying if only there was a man that could come and stand in between us well thank god there was his name was jesus and what was the end result the end result was that he abolished the middle wall of partition he abolished it he didn't bridge it he didn't cross over it he abolished in his flesh the enmity the enmity means the offense that God had against man. What is that offense? What is Adam's original sin? Remember what God told Adam in the day you eat thereof, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, in the day you eat thereof, you shall surely die. All of mankind was dead in trespasses and sins. Their own, but the, the, the original sin of Adam would have been enough if they, even if they hadn't committed their own sin. But notice it says that Jesus abolished it. That means he destroyed it. That means he did away with it. I want you to understand something, folks. Sin is not the problem. Sin will never be the problem for mankind again. Now, the devil tells you, as a believer, as a righteous person, man or woman of God, the devil will tell you that your sin keeps you away from God. That's not true. It's not true personally. It's not true individually. It's not true as a whole. Remember John seeing Jesus coming said, Behold the Lamb of God which taketh away the sin of the world. Well, if Jesus took away the sin of the world, then how could sin be the problem? It's not. Jesus took away the sin of the world. He didn't take away some people's sins. He took away the sin of the world. That's why the issue is never, what are you going to do about sin? The issue is one thing and only one thing, and that is, what are you going to do about Jesus? Sin is not the problem. Sin is never the problem. Even when you fail, even when you fall, even when you stumble, even when you commit sin as a believer, sin is never the problem. It's only one issue, 
And that is, what are you going to do about Jesus? Now that you've sinned, what are you going to do about Jesus? Well, Jesus said that nothing could separate us from the Father. John tells us how to overcome that. We confess our sin. He's faithful and just to forgive us. It's all the same issue. It's never about sin. But see, if if you think sin, if you accept the devil's influence to think sin, then you'll never rise above your behavior. And righteousness is not based on your behavior. Righteousness is based on Jesus. I'm not righteous because I did good this morning. I'm righteous because I'm in Christ. Yeah, but Pastor Mike, I didn't do good this morning. Well, you're still in Christ, aren't you? Yeah, I don't feel too good. I don't feel worthy. But yeah, Jesus is still there. Well, then that's the issue, isn't it? Lord, forgive me. You know, my flesh is as dust. You made me this way. It's not my fault. It's yours. <laughs> Folks, there's a lot of truth in that statement. I didn't say it in a very uh, religious way, but there's a lot of truth in that statement. God knows what you're made of. God's not nearly as concerned about your stumbles as you are. God's not nearly as concerned with your stumbles as the devil is. Because the devil wants to make you think it's one point by point. Each time you do right, you get a good mark. Each time you do wrong, you get four demerits. It's not an even measure. That's why just one messing up, one time messing up, that does it for you. No, it doesn't. Because you're in Christ. And that's his point. In Christ. We are in Christ. It's not a matter of whether we're separated from God anymore. We're in Christ and he's made peace for us through his own blood. Having abolished in his flesh the enmity, even the law of commandments. Notice what Jesus destroyed. Jesus destroyed two things on behalf behalf of the believer. He destroyed first the sin that separated us from God. And second, the commandments that we were bound to keep under the old covenant. Even if we came to to, to God through the Jewish proselyte system he did away with both of them did away with both of them there's no sin problem anymore there's no commandment problem anymore why because you're in christ jesus now in case you think that i'm giving too much liberty to people paul's already said in in uh, the first part of the chapter that we were created we are his workmanship created unto good works so paul's not saying don't worry about what you do he's not saying don't give any thought to living righteous or 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 doing the right thing, good works or whatever. He's not saying that at all. He's saying, since you are free in Christ, you're free to live and do good works. But it all comes back to one thing, and that is remembering where you came from. If you don't remember where you came from, you want to appreciate where you are. Having abolished in his flesh the enmity, even the law of commandments, contained in ordinances, for to make in himself of two... Jews and Gentiles, one new man, so making peace. That's the good news that we have to tell the world, folks. Jesus made peace for us. God's not mad at you anymore. Verse 16, and that he might reconcile both Jews and Gentiles unto God in one body by the cross, having slain the enmity thereby, and came and preached peace to you which were afar off, Gentiles. And to them that were nigh, Jews, for through him we both have access by one spirit into the Father, or unto the Father. I'm going to read to you from Second Corinthians chapter 5, 
verses 17 through 19. Paul said, therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Now, Paul knows that these people have heard of the letter that he wrote to Corinthians. He wrote three. Well, actually, he wrote four. We have a record of two of them, references to others. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. Old things are passed away. What old things passed away? Spiritual things. Alcohol and cigarettes didn't pass away. Spiritual things passed away. Old things are passed away, and behold, all things have become new. And all things are of God who has reconciled us. He's talking about the same reconciliation. Who has reconciled us to himself by Jesus Christ and has given to us the ministry of reconciliation. Now, this word reconciliation is an interesting word because it means to change or exchange mutually. What he's saying is when God reconciled us unto himself, there was a mutual exchange made. Reconciliation is not just forgiveness and acceptance, you know, into fellowship once again. That's not what reconciliation is. Reconciliation means a mutual exchange. The Old Testament tells us where there is no shedding of blood, there can be no remission of sins. That's why the blood of Jesus is such an uh, important issue. He's broken down the enmity, the original sin that separated us from God, by abolishing it in his own flesh. Why? Because flesh is where blood is shed. He abolished it in his own flesh. He condemned, Paul told the Romans, chapter 8, verse 2, Paul says that Christ condemned sin in the flesh. He condemned sin. He, He issued a death sentence, an eternal death sentence in his own flesh by the shedding of his own blood. Sin and the sin that brings spiritual death is not the issue for mankind. Jesus is. Jesus paid the price for those. So it comes down to one question, that is Jesus. The one thing that anybody and everybody's going to have to answer for when they stand before God is, what did you do about Jesus? That's it. God's not going to say, what kind of life did you live? So the people that are out in the world trying to live good and think that's going to get them somewhere with God, that would be great if that's the way it worked. But it's not the way it works. Because the question that's going to be asked, they're going to be all set and all ready. Oh, I'm going to tell all the good works I did when I was here on the earth. I'm going to tell what a good life I lived. All my friends were drinking and carousing, doing all kind of wrong things, but I didn't do that. I lived right on the earth. You're going to be set for the question, what kind of life did you live? And that question will never come. The question will be, what did you do about Jesus? Because Jesus has already assumed, uh, literally consumed, abolished sin and death in his own sacrifice. It's about Jesus. It's always about Jesus. When the devil wants to talk to you, he doesn't talk to you about Jesus, does he? He talks to you about you. He gets tried to get your focus on you and your behavior, where you missed it, your failures, and so forth. It's never going to be about you and your failures ever again. It's always about one thing, and that is Jesus. When the devil starts talking to you about what a terrible person you were because you missed it and you failed here and there, just say, what about Jesus? And the devil will say, we're not talking about him. I'm talking about you. Yeah, but I'm talking about Jesus because I'm in him. Jesus didn't fall. Jesus didn't fail. I'm still in him. What does the devil have to talk to you about? Oh, he's not happy you're in him. He may have to accept you, but that's not the way he wants it. Well, that's not true. The Bible says God planned you to be in him before the foundations of the world. God made Jesus for me before he ever made you, Mr. Devil. 
get things all twisted up, don't we? Folks, it's always going to be about Jesus. Always. In every situation. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. Old things are passed away, and behold, all things have become new. And all things are of God who has reconciled, mutually exchanged us to himself. Jesus took upon himself our punishment so that we could have his righteousness. How long do you, plan, you think he planned to have, for you to have that? Forever. Righteousness is not something you walk in and out of. Righteousness is your eternal condition. Now your behavior may change, but it doesn't change your position. My wife might be ugly to me in the evening, but that doesn't mean she stops being my wife. I could have used that the other way around. But I thought I'd keep it more realistic. <laughs> Behavior doesn't change condition. Does it? I'm taking her on the trip. She can't say a word. <laughs> and all things are of God who has reconciled us to himself by Jesus Christ and has given to us the ministry. Please notice that phrase. The ministry of reconciliation. What is the message of the church? The price is paid. The exchange was made. Come into the family of God and make Jesus the Lord of your life. Answer the question once and for all, what about Jesus? That's the ministry of the church. That's the message of the church. The message of the church is not sin and hellfire. I grew up in a church that preached sin and hellfire. And the altars were full of people trying to escape condemnation over their sin. Same people down there week after week after week rededicating their lives to the Lord. Why? Because we didn't understand who we were in Christ. We thought it was based on our actions. We thought it was based on our behavior. We had no concept what real substitution, reconciliation, the mutual exchange really means. Thank God we don't have to live like that. And all things are of God who has reconciled us to himself by Jesus Christ and has given to us the ministry of reconciliation to wit, to this end, that God was in Christ reconciling the world. Here's that mutual exchange. Reconciling the world unto himself. Not imputing their trespasses unto them. Now I want you to notice something, folks. When Jesus paid the price, paid the mutual exchange for your spiritual death, for the sins of mankind, Notice it says that he did not impute their sins, the world's sins, unto themselves. That means you. That includes you. He doesn't hold your sins against you. He didn't hold your sins against you before going to the cross. Why would he hold your sins against you now? Why, when you were unrighteous, was he willing to not impute your sins to you, not count your sins against you? But somehow or another, the church has the idea that he holds them against us now. It's impossible. Your family now. You were worse than nothing before, and he did it then. Why in the world would you think, would anybody, why in the world would anybody allow the devil to influence them to think that God's holding their sins against them now? It's absolutely impossible. And that's the point Paul's making. That's what it means where it says he's made peace for us. God's always on your side. When you miss it, turn around and say, Oh, Father, I missed it. That's it. 
miss it again? Oh, Father, I missed it again. That's when the devil will say, well, he'd forgive you the first time, but after that, you're on your own. Well, remember what Jesus said about forgiveness when Peter asked him. How many times do I have to forgive? Seven times, 70 times. And he's talking about every day, in a day. Folks, I don't know how somebody could sin 490 times in a day. But I'm pretty sure Jesus felt like that was a safe number for us to understand that God's forgiveness is greater than that. To wit that God, I am going to finish verse 19, I swear. To wit that God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself, not imputing the trespasses unto them, and has committed unto us the word of reconciliation. Here's that mutual exchange. Here's the message of the church. We have the word of reconciliation. Jesus paid the price for sin. He took away the sin of the world. Your sin is not an issue. Your decision about Jesus is. That's the only thing that it comes down to. It's the only thing it'll ever come down to, folks. And don't think that there's another issue for you to settle now that you've made Jesus the Lord of your life. It's always going to be the same issue. What about Jesus? What about Jesus? That question should keep us from doing some things. What about Jesus? Would Jesus do this? Jesus want to join me in this? Should be something that gives us direction. Verse 16 again, back to Ephesians 2. And that he might reconcile both unto God in one body by the cross, having slain the enmity thereof. Now, the, the one body he's talking about having made of two, both Jews and Gentiles, one new creation. He's saying the Jews don't have a leg up on the Gentiles in any respect. In Christ, everybody's equal. Now, if that's true for Jews and Gentiles, that's true for blacks, whites, browns, yellows, whatever other race, whatever other color whatever other group, male and female, bond or free, class, societal societal class, upper class, middle class, lower class, poor, rich. All of these things are even in Jesus. They're equal in Jesus. Now, they never will be equal with the world. Never. Rich and poor are never going to be equal with the world. Races are never going to be equal with the world. And the devil's going to exploit that division any and every way that he can. There's only one way to change that. And that's to preach the word of reconciliation and get people saved one by one. You change people's hearts, get them walking in in the truth of the word, then you can end the racial divisions. But that's one of the great things that the Bible says will increase more and more before Jesus comes. Nation shall rise against nation. That's ethnos shall rise against ethnos. Ethnic group against ethnic group. It's one of the signs, one of the first signs of the end Jesus talked about. We see that happening in our own country. Would anybody have imagined ten or even ten years ago that we'd have some of the situations that we have in the cities where policemen won't even do their jobs because of the animosity against them because of the racial divide? Oh, Pastor Mike, are you taking sides with the police? Yeah. Does that mean all policemen are good? No, not all preachers are good either, but I'm going to keep preaching the word. Just because you got some bad policemen along the way doesn't mean there shouldn't be any laws to, to uphold. 
Even the Bible tells you uphold the laws of, to obey the laws of the land. Yeah, but people have been mistreated. People will always be mistreated. People that are mistreated in one, in one country are honored in another country. People that are honored in our country, you go to another part of the world and they're going to be mistreated over there. It's just the way of the world because the devil's in charge of it. Don't get sucked into all this stuff, folks. Realize there's one and only one issue, and that's Jesus. Should we do right by everybody? Yeah. Should we make everything fair along the, uh, in every respect in the world? It's impossible. You know, the Bible never even says God's fair. God gave some people a lot greater talents than he gave me. How's that fair? It's not an issue of fairness. It's an issue of using what God's given you and making the most out of what you have. I can't do anything about the gifts I have or the gifts I don't have. But I am responsible to be faithful to use them. Just like you. And have you ever noticed the response that we're supposed to be looking for from Jesus when we get to heaven is not well done, good and talented servant? It's not well done, good and white servant? Black servant? Brown servant? It's well done, good and faithful servant. Faithful to what? Faithful to his word. Faithful to the principles that the word teaches. These are things that are going to be undermined and eaten away at in our country. These are things you're going to come under persecution about. I'm sure there are people that don't like what I just said. Well, should I stop saying it if it's true? See, that's where faithfulness comes in for me. I've got to be faithful to say what's true no matter who likes it. Or doesn't like it. Is that going to get me in trouble? The way things are going, it looks like it might. What are you going to do, Pastor Mike? I'm going to do what I've always done. What if they stop you? How in the world can they do that? Put me in jail, I'll preach to the other prisoners. We'll have a big Bible study in jail. Because for me, it's all about one thing, and that's Jesus. Verse 17, and came, we got, well, we got four verses left. I'll get there. And came and preached peace to you which were afar off and to them which were nigh. For through him we both have access by one spirit unto the Father. I want you to understand something, folks. You've got as great of access to God in the area of finances as the Jews do. That's what they're known for. The church spiritualizes so much and does so little naturally. The Jews spiritualize nothing and do everything naturally. And it works for them. You have access to God. Whatever you think the Jews might have an advantage over you as a Gentile, over you as a church, a Christian member of the body of Christ. The Bible says you have the same access and even greater access if they're not saved than they do. Now therefore, now therefore, now therefore, because all these things are true, you are no more strangers and foreigners. Remember he said before in verse 12 that they were aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenant. Now, therefore, you are no more strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens. First thing he mentions is a city. Fellow citizens, members of the city of God, 
Bible says that, that uh, uh, Abraham left where he was and followed God because he saw a city. He sought for a city whose city whose maker was God himself. This is the same city Paul's talking about. Now you are no more strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints. And that's talking about family members. And of the household of God and are built upon the foundation. Now he's going to talk about building. Built upon the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. In whom? In Christ. All the building fitly framed together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In whom you also are builded together for a habitation of God through the Spirit. Let me explain something to you about cornerstones as we, as we close. We know the phrase. It's a, it's a phrase that we sing. It's a phrase that's used in, in religious settings that Jesus Christ is a cornerstone. What does that mean? Do you know what a cornerstone does? A cornerstone is where two walls come together, but it has to have a foundation. It's not the first thing you put out. A foundation has to be laid. For example, if you're building a house, you dig a trench, and you lay based on the, the size of the house and the load-bearing walls and so forth, and you have to trench uh, out a certain distance or a certain depth, and then you pour that with concrete and you let that concrete sit and it has to cure for a certain period of time and so forth. And then you start putting on that foundation, you start building the walls. Now, the cornerstone is not just the, the stone that ties two walls together, although that is part of the purpose. The cornerstone is also, in, in, uh, throughout uh, antiquity, has been called the stone of testing. Because it identifies the stone, the cornerstone is one is a big stone. It's bigger than the other stones in the uh, in the building of the wall. It's the biggest stone that's been used yet, and it tests whether or not the foundation was laid properly. Now, Paul says that the foundation was the teaching of the apostles and the prophets. That doesn't mean the teaching of the apostles and the prophets came before Jesus, because the teaching of the apostles and the prophets is about Jesus. But it's telling us very simply this, that if you're not built on the foundation of the teaching of the apostles and the prophets, the truth of the word of God, the weight of the cornerstone will crack you. You'll crack, you'll crumble under the weight of the cornerstone. And folks, I would submit to you that's exactly what's happening with the majority of the church world that we know of in America today. We don't know who Jesus is. Most of the church world doesn't know who Jesus is. For goodness sakes, they argue about one of the most clear prices that Jesus paid on the cross, and that's sickness and disease. The church is arguing about does sickness or does healing belong to everybody? Well, the Bible said Jesus paid the same price for sickness that he paid, that he paid for sin in the same verse. I mean, you've got to cut out part of the verse to ignore sickness as being part of the price Jesus paid. That's what I'm talking about. The foundation of the apostles and the prophets is the who we are in Christ, what belongs to us because we're believers, and the power of God that, that belongs to us because we've been seated with him in heavenly places. This is the kind of foundation that Paul's talking about. Paul hadn't changed subjects here. When he talks about Jesus being the cornerstone and the foundation laid by the apostles and the prophets, he knows he's talking about him. Now, I, don't, I personally don't believe God showed Paul everything. That would be unlike him to do. So I don't know that Paul knows that the letters that he's going to write or that he is writing, this letter included, is going to be saved for all of posterity. I don't know if he knows that he's going to be one of the last authors of the New Testament books. I don't know if he knows 
that there won't be another generation of people that will write letters and be included in the canon of scriptures we understand. I don't know if he knows any of that stuff. But he knows the teaching of the revelation that he received from Jesus himself is what everybody's going to be judged by. He called it his gospel. He said everybody will be judged by my gospel. Folks, that's pretty heady stuff. I mean, I understand I'm teaching the truth, but I would not go so far as to say you're going to be judged by my teaching. You'll have to answer for a lot of it. But you'd have to know a little bit more than what I'm willing to jump out there for, for me to say that. What does that tell us about Paul? It tells us what he knew of what he had. It tells us what he understood about the plan and the purpose of God for, for the church age. He understood this is the revelation that there is and there won't be anything that comes beyond this. People may understand more about this as time goes on, but there won't be anything new. This is it. So when he's talking about these things, He's talking about the foundations of the teaching that he's giving about who we are in Christ Jesus. And he said that's the foundation that will stand up under the stone of testing. That creates a foundation for Jesus to be exalted. That creates a foundation for both Jews and Gentiles. Those are the two walls coming together. Both Jews and Gentiles to be joined together in Christ Jesus. Folks, what is the theme of Paul's exposition in the last half of chapter 2? It's all about Jesus. It's not about Jews and Gentiles anymore. It's not about people that are in and people that are out. In Christ, we're all one. And what does it create for us? We are builded together for a habitation of God through the work of the Holy Ghost. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. We thank you that it's true. Thank you, Lord, for who you've made us in Christ Jesus. Help us to see, Father, as we read and study your word and meditate on these truths. Help us to see who we are in you, what belongs to us. And, Father, maybe more than anything else, show us the exceeding greatness of your power that works in us as believers. Thank you, Father, for the precious and holy name of Jesus, that name that's above everything, above all the work of the devil, above every attack, every hindrance, every obstacle that can ever be raised against us. Thank you, Father, that the name of Jesus overcomes it all. And because we've been seated with Christ in heavenly places, we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. Lord, help us to be effective ministers of the word of reconciliation in the earth. In Jesus' name, amen.